0: Is stealing in as relapse sums up of the
1: Hello and welcome to episode 362 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by today's guest, Chris Pavelchek, who is in Indianapolis, Indiana, where he is in the process of opening a poker room for the uh, Horseshoe... Casino there, uh, so this is a rare opportunity for us to talk to someone from the uh, industry side of things. Someone running a poker room, or who will be uh, running a poker room, is in the process of you know training dealers and thinking about promotions and lots of behind the scenes stuff that happens at a poker room. So uh, I found this quite interesting to talk to somebody from from that side of things. I uh, hope that you will enjoy it as well. Chris is uh, charismatic guy, fun to, fun to talk to, fun to listen to, I think, uh, have some strategy for you before we get around to that. And our strategy segment today is sponsored by my new book, which is called Essential Poker Concepts. Uh, this is actually a compilation of uh, some of my all-time favorite essays that I wrote for 2 plus2 magazine uh, I'm gonna be doing a series of these books uh, printing essays that I've written over the years uh, so these ones are coming from my first five years as a poker writer like 2006 through 2011 um, obviously not everything that I wrote during that time is something that I would necessarily still want to like <laughs> stand behind today or you know still reflects how I think about poker. Poker. But these particular essays are, are ones that I uh, handpicked, the, that I, I chose as um, really, I think, still being pretty foundational to how I think about the game now. Um, and I will say for people uh, I mean, I think if, if you like Playoptimal Poker, you you will like these. If you found Playoptimal Poker to be kind of, or if you've just sort of steered clear of it because it sounded like it was going to be kind of like dense or heavy or whatever, like these are much lighter. Um, I think there's, there's a little more comedy in them. Uh, I'm not explaining things with quite so much rigor. So there, there's a little bit more just sort of commonsensical uh, explanations of things. Uh, so this is meant to be a much lighter read than, um, than, than Playoptimal. Poker uh, and, and Platinum Poker too, as well of course. Uh, as with those books, the paperback is available exclusively through Amazon. So you just want to search Essential Poker Concepts on there, and uh, you can find the paperback. For an ebook, uh, the, if you want the, the the Kindle version, you know delivered the way Amazon delivers it, where it just sort of automatically, magically shows up on your device when you connect to the Wi-Fi. Uh, that again, you do through Amazon. Uh, if you want. The um, ebook version through me, you will get access to a uh, a Kindle version, also to an EPUB and a PDF. And you can get those at www.knitcast.com, N I T C A S T.com, which is also where you'll find, um, you can find ebook versions of my other books. You can find uh, some of the, the training videos that I've done with uh, Carlos, the strategy podcasts that Nate and I have done, the various Weekend Worries. Um, podcasts, all sorts of good stuff on knitcast.com. If you haven't checked that out recently, I would certainly encourage you to do so. Uh, you can also support the podcast by going to patreon.com thinkingpokerdaily daily, uh, and you'll get daily strategy segments from Carlos, Nate, and myself. Um, that's really the best place to hear us talk about strategy and uh, your support is really the thing that's keeping this show going. Now on to today's strategy question, which is coming from Jonathan in Copenhagen. Jonathan says, I live in Copenhagen, Denmark, where there's a big poker community, but due to there being uh, only one casino, which has high rake, mandatory tipping, entrance fee, and generally just bad customer service. A lot of the poker is played in underground card rooms. These rooms attract certain types of player and have a certain environment. And there's often a lot of cash on the table, literally. I'm a 30-year-old serious recreational player with moderate winnings in the last couple of years. In this environment, I'm undoubtedly being looked on as tight, professional, serious, a bit boring, one of the harder players to beat. My questions are more in the theoretical department. I have a lot of baseline assumptions about the player pool due to the aforementioned environment. The field is quite soft, but the rake is very high, so I need to be on my best to beat the game pre-flop, the players play too many hands, they limp too much, they call too much, they're positionally unaware, they don't 3-bet often enough, and they're more concerned with their whole cards than with the price to see a flop. This is the street in which the player pool in my card room play the worst and I have the best opportunities to exploit them. So I tighten up my range, play fewer hands, play them more aggressively, size up when I raise, and make big folds faced with 3 or 4 bets. Sound about right? On the flop, many players are fit or fold. Uh, They're likely to continue with a lot of their draws, even though faced with aggression and drawing to the low end of a straight or low middle flush. I exploit this by c-betting a lot, but for a small price due to the natural fold equity their tendencies are giving me. Anything else I should pay attention to? The turn is where I'm most bewildered. I do not have good baseline assumptions of the field, nor a good theoretical standpoint. How do I continue my thinking from pre-flop and flop to the turn? River. The player pool doesn't bluff enough. They also never check raises a bluff, i.e. they always have it. Many players are very unlikely to make big folds on the final street. Faced with aggression, I consider fold very heavily. I fold a lot of my pure bluff catchers. If I have a thin value hand, I still elect to value bet slash raise, and I do so for a significant amount due to their stickiness. I do a lot less bluffing. My final question is if I can go too far out of the exploitative road. How much wiggle room are there for me to make these kinds of adjustments? Would love to hear your thoughts. I imagine this is going to sound familiar to a lot of people listening to this show. Um, Your particular environment may not be quite this extreme, but I think this is, I mean, to some degree, this is what most poker games are like. and certainly, smaller stakes games. Uh, what I, you know, often people will come to me and they'll sort of say like, "Well, I play in this in this, and this is not. I don't think what um, what our correspondent here is doing." But people will say, "Well, you know, I play in, in this very specific game where people are like so loose and so crazy, and I, I really need like strategy tips for for my game in particular." Um, and the truth is, I mean, the, the like the details of what you're doing might change a little bit depending on the game, but. Um, I mean, I think what this really boils down to, and I'm sure something people have heard me say on the show before, most people are too loose and too passive. And then it's just a question of degree. Like, how loose and how passive are they? The kinds of things that you're going to do to exploit players who are too loose and too passive are the same uh, in terms of... Well, we'll talk about what those things are. I like Jonathan's breakdown, like, street by street, so I'll be able to comment on that pretty effectively, I think. But um, the, the point is, like... If we say something like uh, make a larger preflop raise, you know what exactly larger means. Whether that's like four x or eight x or ten x the big blind, you know that could change depending on on the game. But the the overall the, the sort of fundamental adaptation of use a larger raise size, um, or or you know make big folds when they show aggression. Again, like what exactly constitutes a big fold? The, the details might change depending on the game, but the the fundamental adjustment will not. So. I think this will be valuable for um, even those of you who uh, never set foot in this poker room in Copenhagen. Um, I guess the first thing I'll say is the rake being very high is uh, super. I mean, it depends a lot again on like what what very high is. I mean, I think there's some places where the rake can just be like. 10% uncapped, and then you're expected to like tip on top of that, and I mean, that's like almost no matter how soft the game is, that's going to be unbeatable. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's a tendency sometimes for people to look at a really soft game like this and think... Oh my, the people are so terrible. This is just like, uh, like the, the rake still matters a lot. And I mean, your opponents really have to be making, I mean, it's, it's pretty hard to just like consistently get a lot of money into the pot as more than a 10% favorite, which is what you need to do, right. To be a a 10% rake, um, that that's like, that's really a high bar, uh, so, I, I think it is important to keep... I mean, and I'm sure Jonathan has other reasons for, for playing. He probably enjoys playing as as well. I just want to put out there that I, I think sometimes people overestimate how much money they're going to make in a game because they just sort of look at um, some of the, the weakest play or, or the weakest players in that game and then extrapolate from there and think like, oh, I'm just going to make so much money. Uh, and it matters, you know, who are the tougher players in the game. It matters what does the rake look like. Uh, I, I think it, it can it can be easy to get too up optimistic. optimistic just from looking at some of the worst uh, things that you see. Uh, In terms of adjusting to this specific situation, um, I don't agree that you should tighten up pre-flop. I mean, I think if people are are playing too many hands and playing badly, you want to be in pots with them. I mean, if if they're going to make mistakes after the flop, you can't take advantage of those mistakes if you're not in there with them. Uh, What I do think is true is that you, you can't rely as much on fold equity for your value. I mean, either pre-flop or for the most part after the flop. I think Jonathan is right about people playing fit or fold on the flop, and, and I'll come back to talk about that when, when we get to the flop. But I think pre-flop, you want to have an understanding of um, you know like sort of what, what baseline – Opening ranges might be from from various positions, uh, and you might get these from looking at charts or, or things like that. And then think about where does the value from raising these different sorts of hands come from. So, like when you raise aces under the gun, um, you know you're not gaining terribly much from your opponent's folds. You're gaining something. I mean, if you raise aces and your opponent folds 10-7 suited, like they had a chance to beat you, and, and now they don't. So that is worth something to you. Um, it's not worth nearly as much as when they call. Um, Ace-King is benefiting a good deal more from folds, but it's also benefiting a lot from their bad calls. Like if you raise with Ace-King and your opponent calls with King-9 offsuit, that's really nice for you. Uh, It's okay for you if they call with 10-7 suited, although not nearly as good as when you have Aces. Uh, It's better if you've made a larger raise. Uh, And then there's certain hands like um, 8-7 suited or something when you raise from early position where you're pretty heavily reliant on pre-flop folds. And that's not to say that the hand doesn't have value after the flop or, you know, like, of course, you have a fighting chance if you get called by the King-9 offsuit. But as you start raising uh, some of these hands that are kind of weak in absolute terms, um, those are the hands where like now your opponent's looseness is not necessarily a mistake anymore, at least not against your specific hand. So if you raise an early position with like eight seven suited and then several people call you and they call with you have know, stupid hands, queen five suited and king eight off suit and just kind of really pretty bad hands for calling early position raises, um, they're actually not making a mistake against your exact hand. Like they have position, they have the better hand that like you've you've kind of turned their looseness into a correct Thank um, so those might be the hands that would drop out of your range. That doesn't mean you're tightening up, though, because there are other hands that might be worth raising that you that, you that know, maybe wouldn't show up in a, a solver approved range. So like Ace-10 offsuit from under the gun. Um, often not a very appealing raising hand in a tighter game. You're going to be dominated very often if you get action. But in a game where people are calling raises with any Ace, where they're calling raises with uh, hands like 10-9 offsuit, Jack-10 offsuit, Queen-10 offsuit, you're actually going to dominate a lot of what they're playing. So you you want to think about how can their looseness be an asset for you? How can you take advantage of that rather than just thinking about what what hands become unplayable or you know which of my hands are like punished by their looseness? That's half of the equation. But the other half is, you know, what new hands might be worth raising if people are going to call um, really loosely pre-flop. I think you're kind of limited in your ability to exploit this from early position because just, you know, being out of position is, is going to be difficult, and the weaker the hands that you're playing, the more difficult that's going to be, but as you get around to later position, I think you can you certainly expand. Like, if, I mean, I, I imagine it doesn't happen too often, but like if it folds around to you on the cutoff or the button, I think you can raise quite a lot, even knowing that the blinds are going to be really loose. Just like if they're making bad calls out of position, now, even if you are the player holding, like eight, five suited and they call with a uh, queen deuce offsuit. you know, like technically they've called with a hand that's better than yours, but uh, I, I might rather have the eight, five suited in position than the queen deuce offsuit suit out of position. I, I probably would. So, you know, when they're out of position, their bad folds, are or sorry, their bad calls are going to be a lot more of an asset for you even when you have fairly weak hands. Um, I also kind of get the sense, I mean, Jonathan didn't say this explicitly, but, uh, Not every hand that you play has to be played aggressively. Um, So I do think that probably makes sense. Like if people are gonna make bad calls, you wanna make larger raises. You wanna make raises as large as you can to take advantage of their bad calls. In other words, what you don't wanna do, you don't wanna raise so big that they actually fold like you want them to make the mistake. So even if you have ace king, like your goal is not raise so large that your opponent folds ten seven suited. Your goal is you know to raise as much as you can to still get them to make that bad call. Um, so you know if, if if like eight times the big blind, is people are just shrugging and being like, well, I like my cards and I want to see what happens. Um, then eight times the big blind is, is probably a good size for your for your raises and. Um, the, the the key there in terms of like how strong does your hand need to be to make a raise of that size it just needs to be stronger than the hands that are calling you I mean that's that's the the baseline um, if, if you know that your opponents are going to call with worse then your hand is is worth raising uh, now the problem comes when you get hands you know I, I've been using eight seven suited as an example you get eight seven suited under the gun um, I don't necessarily want to just fold that but I don't really want to make an you know, a, a eight times the big blind raise or even a three times the big blind raise in a game that, that's really loose. Uh, so I might consider limping with that hand or with pocket twos or some of these other hands that are like their preflop equity is not going to be great. Most of the time they're going to be tough to play out of position, but, you know, they have potential to turn into something that could be really valuable in a game like this where, where people are too sticky. Um, And now you might be thinking, well, isn't that exploitable? I'm going to raise all my good hands and limp with all my bad hands. Uh, Yeah, that is exploitable. And I'm counting on these players not doing very much to exploit you. They're probably really used to seeing limping, and they're not necessarily going to think, whoa, wait a minute, Jonathan limped? You know, I think they're just going to be like, oh yeah, people limp. I'm going to limp also. Like, I I don't. Th- I mean, if you get the sense that people are kind of attacking your limps, you can think about. I mean, maybe you want to limp with aces. Maybe you want to stop limping with the bad hands. I would just say like experiment with it. And I think there's a fair chance your opponents are going to be fairly oblivious. Or even if they do sort of recognize that your limps are a little bit suspicious, they're not necessarily going to know what to do about that or do a very good job of of taking advantage of that. So um, I would say you know, and, and like likewise, if if other people. Have limped in front of you, or if people have made like small raises, especially when your position is good. Like I'm imagining, maybe you know it is common in these games, I guess, that people are uh, opening maybe like five times the big blind or something. So if someone comes in for like a five x raise and two people call, and now you're on the button with like eight five suited. Um, depending on how bad these players are and, and how deep you are, this which is one important factor. Jonathan didn't mention like the deeper this game is, the more reason you might have to be pretty loose when your own position is, is really good. Um, I could see a case for calling there. Certainly I'm calling with like 8-7 suited, probably 8-6 suited. So, you know, I've got to find a pretty weak hand, like 8-5 suited before I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to call this. Like assuming there's a decent amount of money behind, assuming these players are pretty bad, assuming the blinds are not very likely to 3-bet. Uh, I think that when you have like premium position, you have a hand that plays pretty well in a multi-way pot. Like I don't want to call here with King-9 offsuit, but I think if you have a hand that plays pretty well in, in a multi-way pot and you've got a really nice position. Again, like you want to be trying to get into hands with these players, uh, and even if you are starting at a pre-flop disadvantage, you can count on them making enough post-flop mistakes that will maybe subsidize you. You playing these additional hands, you do want to invest as little as you can pre-flop. You know, you know that you are behind pre-flop, so you're not trying to put a lot of money in at that point. You're just trying to get into favorable situations after the flop. So speaking of favorable situations after the flop. Um, I think this is a really good observation on Jonathan's part, that uh, these people, even though they're very loose, in fact, because they're very loose pre-flop, they're actually folding to a lot of flop bets. You know, I, I think Jonathan has thought about this in a, in a pretty fine-grained way, which is important. Sometimes you'll hear people say just, uh, you know, it's a really loose game, so don't bluff. Well, I think there is a specific time when, when you can do a fair bit of... of Bluffing, And I think the better way to say it is don't try to bluff these players off of hands they're interested in. So pre-flop, they easily get interested in hands because all kinds of hands have potential pre-flop. But then on the flop, that's kind of the moment where they lose interest in a lot of their hands. You know, they call with the queen five suited or whatever, and they see the flop. And of course, most of the time they don't flop anything. And then um, they have all these hands that have just missed and you want to take advantage of that. And exactly the way to do that is by, um, by betting small, right? And I think this is what Jonathan means when he says natural fold equity, that there's a bunch of hands that, from your opponent's perspective, are just worth absolutely nothing, and they're not really gonna do a lot of like floating or check raise bluffing or whatever. They're just gonna fold when they look at the flop and just doesn't seem like they like their hand. Uh, now, the details of this still, still matter in terms of, you know, like your cards are gonna matter here as well, uh, at least in a multi way pot. In a heads up pot, you might be able to get away with just like betting any two for a small size. People are often kind of oblivious to the size of the pot as well. So I think the key here is is keeping this small. You know, I think sometimes people are like, well, if I'm if I'm bluffing, if I want people to fold, shouldn't I bet big? Uh, no, <laughs> you shouldn't. Because, yeah, you're going to get more folds, but you're also taking on greater risk. I mean, if we're thinking about betting $25 versus betting $75, like, yes, you'll get more folds when you bet $75. Will you get three times as many folds? I doubt it. So um, the, the, the point is that you want to try to get, like, the best risk-reward ratio that you can. And um, I think often reducing the risk is, is the better way of doing that rather than trying to increase the reward by, by getting more folds. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, th- there's certainly a lot of d- details in terms of like whether a specific hand would be worth uh, continuation betting. I think you know, when you have a close decision, you want to think about the potential for your hand to improve. You want to think about your position. I guess the other thing that, that's relevant here it it may actually be correct to do more slow playing on the flop against these kinds of players if you know that there's going to do like. Tons of folding on the flop especially on boards where the hands that they're going to fold could very easily improve to something second best so i think i kind of maybe like an example that's not intuitive for everyone you have pocket kings and you raise and you get uh, just a single caller. Like, w- once you have like three or four people seeing the flop, I think you just kind of want to bet when you flop an overpair because it's a pretty good chance somebody has something. But you, know, you have kings and just like a single person calls you, and the flop is eight five three, uh, even eight five three with a flush draw. Uh, the chances of this person having a draw are just not that high. Like, yeah, they're playing a lot of suited hands pre-flop, but that just means like they're also gonna have a lot of hands that are in different suits or a lot of hands that aren't suited. I mean, they're just they're not gonna flop a draw that often, so you don't need to panic could be like oh god there's a draw on the board i have to bet when i have an overpair here's what's going to happen when you bet and this is what you're this is what you're banking on when you do all your your bluffing when you bet they're just going to fold a ton of hands that are live i mean they're not live against you but from your opponent's perspective like they're going to fold a lot of hands they could turn top pair they're going to fold, you know the queen tens and the king nines and and all kind of stuff like that and that's bad for you. Like, if you can get them to fold an ace, okay, you're gaining something. Like, you're, you're you're accumulating what, like 16% of the pot, something like that, if you get them to fold an ace. So, you know, th- there is some value in protecting your hand, but there's also value in letting your opponent see the next card if they have a hand like queen-10 where they could easily turn top pair. They're, you're going to get nothing if you bet. They're just going to fold because you know they fold too much. Um, but if they do happen to hit, they're, they're going to pay you big. So the critical thing there is, um, A, that your hand is difficult to Draw out one, and B that your opponent could easily improve. Uh, there's, by the way, an, uh, by the way, an essay um, explicitly about this in uh, Essential Poker Concepts, the, the book that I was plugging earlier. Um, and it's not necessarily like your hand doesn't have to be a monster like i'm not talking about slow playing pocket eights here although it would also be reasonable but like kings is also a candidate for this like i think it occurs to a lot of people to slow play when they flop the nuts i don't think as many people think about slow playing when they just flop like an overpair but if it's a really big overpair like like king i'm deliberately choosing kings not aces because i want to make the point that it's okay to take a little bit of risk here it's okay that like there is still one over card that could come because i think that you know the yes and ace is a bad card for you but a queen a jack a 10 and nine those are all good cards for you so like over Overall, there's more reward than there is risk to, to checking, um, and you can think. I mean, th- this is that's, those are just the principles. Do use, You have know, situation by situation. You you want to think about this. Um, you might also want to think about going for some check raises when you're out of position in, in the same kind of situation. Like if so you have kings on age 5 3 and you're out of position, I think check raising is really nice here because you kind of get the best of both worlds. You check if your opponent has nothing, they'll, they'll take a free card and you want them to take a free card because your hand is hard to draw out on and you want them turning that top pair. Um, if they if they did connect with the board, they'll often bet, and then you can get your check raise in. So you get um, you get the benefits of fast playing against some of their better hands, and you get the benefits of slow playing against their weaker hands. Uh, on the turn, Jonathan says he's kind of bewildered. Um, bottom line is, I think you should do a lot of checking. So, if your expectation is that your opponents are going to fold too much on the flop. The corollary to that is that once they get, if they do actually call a flop bet, like assuming that you bet the flop and they called, they they have a hand that they're interested in. And that means it's probably going to be difficult to get them off of it. So if you can beat hands that they're interested in and that'll be a judgment call in, in the situation. But that's basically the question you want to ask yourself. Like just assume that they're not going to fold once they don't fold the flop. <laughs> assume that they probably aren't going to fold. And then uh if you can if you can beat the kinds of hands you think they're going to continue with, then you want to value bet, even if your hand is not super strong. So that might this might mean value betting stuff like second pair. You know, I think a lot of people fall into this pattern of like, oh they bet the flop and then they go Get called, and then if they don't have top pair, top kicker, or better, they won't bet the turn. They'll just check back for pot control. You don't want to do that against these really loose players. Like you want to bet more thinly for value, especially when the board is dynamic and like your hand might not be good enough to value bet on later streets. So, continuing to fire with like top pair, even when the board is getting kind of coordinated. You know, maybe it is. It's the eight five three flop, and you have uh, like pocket tens, and you bet, and now the turn is a jack. You know, like that's a good time to bet again, or the turn is a seven or a six or something that might have completed some straights even a seven of the flush suit so now the board is like eight seven five three with three flush cards and you don't have a, whether or not you have a flush card actually i don't think it really matters um against looser players you want to bet again like i think people panic too much in this spot and they're like oh i don't you know my hand's not not that good anymore so i'll check against the looser player your hand is a lot better than it would be against a tighter player and we're not worried about these people check raise bluffing so you can just bet and if they raise you you fold that's it nothing complicated about it uh if if you bet and they call there's they're going to call with lots of hands that are less good than yours. You can decide on the river whether your hand is worth another value bet. But um like you want to be making those thin value bets in this um, in this situation, and then the flip side is you're not really going to be trying to to barrel them too much. Like if you are betting, it should be with a hand that has a lot of opportunity to draw out. Um, when the turn is a scary card, you know there's a little bit more room for you to to do that. Like if if the turn is some kind of overcard to the board, maybe you're going to get some more folds than you would um, otherwise. But I think for the most part, it's like you want to be looking for thin value more than you want to be looking for bluffs which is basically the same thing that that jonathan says about the river um i think basically like everything jonathan's saying about the river also applies to the turn um in terms of like you want to even when you're making a thin value bet you can still use a large size um don't be confused by that of like well i'll bet big when i have the nuts but i'll just bet small when in second pair like if you can beat the average hand they're going to call with you want to put as much money to the pot as you can uh, it's not a matter of like, I put more money in when I'm more confident in my hand, that's that's not really how the math works. Um, you do want to do less bluffing, and if they show a lot of strength, you want to fold. So, yeah, I mean, basically, I think, Jonathan, you were already thinking about this quite well. Hopefully I've added a few useful twists to it. But, uh, yeah, all in all, I think you're approaching this the right way. And, you know, everyone can think about how this applies in their own game. Um, You are definitely playing with people who are too loose and too passive, even if they are not as loose and passive as the folks in Copenhagen. Thank you, Jonathan, for writing. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. And please enjoy my interview with Chris Pavelchek. Well, Chris, uh, thank you so much I guess both for for joining me and for making yourself available in, in the first place. You know as you commented, we uh, always have an interest in talking to people on the um, corporate's not quite the right word, but you know on the, the industry side of things and uh, I think some people are maybe just a little little reluctant to you know talk about things on on the air or
2: whatever. so I, I appreciate your uh, making yourself available. No, I appreciate you having me, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, like, I'm more than happy to talk to you guys. Maybe there's a reason that uh, top, not too many of my uh, peers come on shows like this. Maybe I'm about to make a career any mistake. And I don't even know. What do. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not my intention to hold your feet to the
1: fire, but you know, <laughs> I, the, I think any any errors will be unforced errors. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's fair, but I don't need them to be forced. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um so you're gonna be uh you're in the process now of opening a poker room in, in indianapolis is that the the gist of it
2: uh that's right yeah I, uh, I just got done with my third or fourth week at the casino so right now it's called indiana grand uh it or the, the name of the place now is called indiana grand it's going to rebrand to horseshoe indianapolis here in december and this is adjoining a big renovation and uh, expansion that they're doing on the property and so I've been brought in to get the poker room up off the ground and get it running, um, train up a new crop of dealers uh, with eye towards having a World Series stop um, soon in the future.
1: Oh, cool. I, I hadn't heard that part. But yeah, that's that's all pretty exciting. Congratulations, by the way. That's a cool, uh, a cool thing to be doing.
2: Yeah, I feel like um, yeah, definitely getting in on the ground floor here is pretty cool. Um, we have a lot of opportunities to write policies and um right rules and stuff, uh, basically with no legacy holding us back. You know, uh, we can do things pretty much however we want them, as long as I can explain them in such a way that, to get them, you know, past the gaming board.
1: Yeah, okay, so that answers my next question, which is confirming that so there's not been a poker room. Where, where is the nearest poker room to um, to Indianapolis right now?
2: so here in indy uh the poker is very limited Uh, the the casino that i'm at now indiana grand uh they closed up a digital card room they had like three or four tables of i don't know if you've seen or heard of these they're like um what do they call them table tronic or something they're like video like a card game where you sit down and it's like a video screen stuff and you play with other people yeah i think a lot of uh, cruise ships
1: have those
2: yeah yeah I i think that's where it's coming but that's all uh that's all all basically, that was down here um, until they closed the room desk last December, um, getting ready for this expansion. Uh, there's also charity and obviously home games going on stuff, too. There's a bunch of leagues that run like the Knights of Columbus and uh, the Shriners and the BFW and stuff like that. Uh, but in terms of a real poker room, indeed, uh, has not had one um, at all ever. And I think the closest one would be uh, Cincinnati an hour and a half away, uh, Louisville an hour 20 away, or Ham Hammond, uh, you know, three hours north from Chicago. Mm-hmm.
1: What, what are you looking forward to? You know, you're, you're you're starting from scratch. You get to do things your way. What are the, like, pet peeves that you're like, that's oh, not going to happen in my poker room? <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, well, I wish I could obviously just snap everything and do everything the way that I want. I've been a poker player for a number of years, and I feel like I've got a pretty good idea on uh, what people are looking to see um, out of the room. Um, in terms of, like, doing things my own way, Um, I, I'm very up on, you know, making sure that we put out a, a great product here, especially get our stuff off on the right foot. Get the training class done well, get everyone trained um, to really know what they're talking about here so that um, both my floors and the dealers can act as subject matter experts and to introduce you know, this market to poker that they've never had before. Um, so definitely my number one priority is getting, getting my staff hired and trained, um, getting them in a position to uh, get them to know what poker is so they can explain to all of our new players what poker is.
1: Yes. Yeah, so are you are you working pretty much exclusively with people who are going to be new to poker? Or are you able to hire some folks, or, or are they? Uh, I guess I've heard about this too. That sometimes um, they might like lend you some folks with some expertise in poker to kind of help you get off the ground, like maybe from other um, horseshoe properties or something like that. Is that a is that a thing?
2: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it it, it would be a pretty Herculean effort if I was going to do this all myself. Um, I definitely <laughs> need to. I'm in the process now of. Um, interviewing supervisors, um, uh, either experienced ones, um, both from our table game game section, uh, to maybe that have some poker experience like in the charity games or something, or fingers crossed, I'll get some applicants um, from outside of town, maybe people that are from the Indianapolis area and want to come back, uh, that have worked in Carver before, to give me a hand with this. Uh, But other than that, I've gotten a ton of help um, from my counterpart in Hammond, Mike Soto, who runs uh, a great book room up there. Uh, He's been super helpful and friendly, helped me get things off the ground and pointing out to me a bunch of things that I didn't even know that I was missing.
1: What would you say that you're looking for in a, like when you say you're you're interviewing supervisor, you know, like what, what makes for a good supervisor? What what are you trying to select for?
2: Uh, so obviously friendliness and poker knowledge are going to be the number one and two things that we go for. Uh, you, you need to have those as good fundamental. Like you need to know the rule book in and out. You need to know all how policies backing out. And you need to have, you know, experience dealing with poker players and gamblers in general with like good customer service background. So those are number one and two basically all the time. After that, you're looking for someone who can think outside the box, um, that can not get, can appreciate that the rulebook isn't going to cover every situation that could that can, can come up, and can be able to that this person can be able to improvise um, and come up with you know a way either to deal with a guest dispute, handle a call on the game, dealing with the dealers that are being difficult or something, you know someone that's um, able to take a tense situation and diffuse it. Uh, definitely is number three up there in terms of what I'm looking for for staff.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what what's the expectation like I, I hear a lot of different things in terms of how casinos think about their poker rooms you know, I, I think there there was this idea i get the sense this is maybe kind of dated now that poker rooms are just expected to be a loss leader or they don't really expect to make a lot of money from them but they're just like they feel like they need to have them or or something uh, i mean I, I realize you're probably a little limited in, in what you can say here but you know what it what is it that you get the sense that the, the corporate is is looking for from you or how how are they going to be determining uh, w- whether you're successful?
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so the room being successful and you're right. Uh, at the end of the day, poker room, no poker room anywhere in the country um, can even hold a handle to like two blackjack tables. And mm-hmm. So you're right. My boss is higher than me. Uh, don't really see the utility of the poker room from a money making perspective uh, with, with the exception of the WSOP. Well, I'll come back to that in a second um so the way that i was always taught to think about the poker room in terms of how we're going to run it and how we're going to deal with the guests and everything is that it's not a it's not a money maker for the casino it will make money and will make plenty of money in like an objective sense uh, like thousands of dollars a day and everything um but it it just needs to be run efficiently because at the end of the day uh absolute numbers wise it it means nothing almost to the casino Uh, but they still obviously want to see the room being run efficiently and, you know, I can't just burn money, giving away promotions or paying people too much. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, it's more like an amenity. Uh, it's not there to bring money into the casino. It's uh, something to bring in new players and something that the players there um, like to use in addition to blackjack tables or a slot machine or the OTV or something.
1: <laughs> um and and that's something I was curious about in, in terms of like who you're looking to to attract. I mean, I guess to some degree it's going to be people who are already playing poker somewhat seriously in other venues, like you mentioned, charity rooms or um, uh, bar leagues or, or that kind of thing. Um, I guess to some degree it's also you know, getting people who are not currently serious poker player, kind of convincing people to hey try poker since this is like a, a fairly new market, right?
2: Uh, yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, so the the way that we're going to approach that is, um, at first, um, I need to kind of um, gain the uh, patronage of the poker players that are already here and playing regularly. So the guys that are playing in these um, like charity games or these underground games, they'll see I need to get them into the room first. Um, so because once these poker players that are there used to it, I don't need to explain anything to them. They're not going to be intimidated by, you know, what live poker looks like to play. I need to get them into a room and then from there. I can, a a busy room will breed a busy room, and I can use promotions and stuff to attract players to make the experience not as intimidating to them, um, offer them some other money, um, you know, promotional money and stuff to get them in the door and advertisements. Um, Other than that, I'll be honest, I am open to suggestions when it comes to attracting new players to a live card room. Uh, Like I said, we've basically, nothing's in the books instead of in terms of policies, procedures, or promotions, so if you had any input on How someone like me might go about um, getting someone into the poker room that's never tried it before. I'd uh, love to hear it. (laughs) I
1: I don't know if it's really something I've thought too much about before. You know, I um pretty much all my interactions are with people who are serious enough about poker to be listening to a podcast or or something along those lines Uh, in in terms of like how do you just convince someone i
2: people that you that's the same way like i work in poker rooms and i go and play poker in poker rooms but i'm only interacting with the people that are already here you know so it was kind of a like maybe not confirmation bias but definitely a bias uh, that i'm not really not seeing the whole picture here when it comes to the eyes of a new person
1: yeah i mean i guess what i may be a little bit more familiar with is like how do you go about Figuring out that, like, how how do you go about getting those answers if you don't already have them? Which I guess ideally means talking to people, you know, having a way of, uh, which again, like, maybe if if you're not the priority within the casino anyway, maybe this is a a trickier thing to do. But, you know, ideally, uh, just surveying random customers coming into the casino and asking like what would it take for you to try a poker what would be more appealing to you would you like to see bonuses or would you like to see um i mean i guess there's the uh the thing where you, you can like teach people how to play or like have the uh you come to this thing and we'll spend an hour teaching you how to play and then you'll get twenty dollars in chips to play with or you know those those sorts of promotional things but you know just like ask people what like, what would you want to say
2: yeah yeah Absolutely. And yeah, if uh, yeah, if you have any, um, you know, in the future, if you've got any ideas that pop in your head, I'm open to hearing anything. Um, I'm taking surveys. I'm talking to guests on the floors, um, our table game sealers that are down there, the guys at the charity games that I uh, see every once in a while uh, for ideas and stuff. And uh, I'm definitely open to anything. So, yeah. If, if you really want
1: here. suggestions, uh, I would say maybe give people a way of, of contacting you and, and someone listening to this might have uh, better ideas than I do. <laughs>
2: Oh, sure. For sure. Uh, yeah. If anyone cares to reach out to me, uh, Andrew, if you could put this in the notes or something, my email mm-hmm. is Pabblecheck at caesars.com. That's C-P-A-V-E-L-C-H-I-K at caesars.com. And I'm open to any input that anyone has to offer. Cool. Yeah, I I, uh,
1: I wish I had better ideas. But yeah, like I said, it's just not um, it's not something that I've really thought my you know, I, I i think more about how to which I, I mean i guess that's that's the thing for you also is like how do you what am i trying to ask here um well, do, do you have uh connections already like are, are you familiar with people who are playing in in the charity games like are you networked into that at all
2: uh v- a very little bit um i went uh, i'll be honest Honestly, I haven't been real impressed with the quality of the product at the Charity Games. Um, and I did go for a couple months, uh, maybe like once a week for a couple months when my wife and I first moved down here. Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't really been back. I wasn't really wild about it. Um, but I do know some of the guys. And I do get input from them every once in a while. Or a lot of them are friends with the players that we have at the casino or the dealers are friends with them and stuff. So things trickle through the grapevine. Um, but in terms of like what they're looking for, I think just uh, you know, just having a good room, good products, have everything good look nice, uh, well-trained dealers, competent floor staff, go probably a long way towards getting us off the ground, and then explore some more of their ideas in the future about uh, in terms of you know attracting new players to the game itself, and growing growing the brand and growing the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would think a fair number of people who are playing in the sort of, like, quasi-legal or, or even if it's fully legal, just, I mean, pe- people who are serious enough to be playing somewhat regularly in, like, charity games or that kind of thing, would be likely to check out a poker room so I, I think it would be not so much getting them to try it as sort of how to hook them once they're there. Like if if they are going to say, like, oh, let's see if I enjoy this more than I enjoy the the, the charity game, you know, like how how do you um, how, how do you convince them to to stay? I, I would think convincing them to try it wouldn't be that hard.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think convincing them, so experienced players, I got a feeling that um, convincing them to stay will just be as easy as giving them a good poker product, you know, Um, chairs that are comfortable to sit on, a nice felt, chips, uh, waitress to bring drinks around, a professional dealer, stuff like that, like that is, you know, a lot of what poker players that, you know, know what they're looking for, that is like the primary stuff. Um, On top of that, obviously, we're looking for good games, so for that, you want players that. Playing the good games and promotions to help get those players into the room. Uh, I think that um, honestly, yeah, just being open and, and like I said, just having everything run well and having the room run efficiently and everything be a quality product is going to probably do most of the work for me in that. Um, right. Because once we start to gain traction at the casino, you know, I can run 24 hours a day. My venue is objectively nicer than the places that are being played in, it's objectively more secure than the places that are being played in right now. Um, I think it'll probably just be a domino effect of once people start coming to the casino, uh, that those rooms will just eventually dry up. Um, so something actually along those lines, and I was just had a meeting with our marketing manager about this, is uh, so, uh, unfortunately, I, I think that's how the way that it's going to go, that the horseshoe opening its poker room is going to do a lot to um, maybe not kill, but put really put the hurt on these uh, charity games and stuff. And so something I'm going to look at doing is probably reaching out to these venues, like the VFW, Shriners, uh, and that's Columbus, uh, whoever else runs them around here. Uh, let them know you know, if they're not aware of the situation and possibly reaching out to them for some partnerships uh, with charities and stuff so that, that they can get taken care of. Um, but in terms of that, in terms of taking um, absorbing the business from those games, uh, that's basically the only thing I'm worried about.
1: That's cool. And it's nice that you're thinking in those terms as well of like the, the whatever charities are benefiting from the uh, existing charity games to uh, to not just be leaving them uh, high and dry. I think that would be easy to uh, to overlook. And it's it's good that you're not doing that.
2: Oh, yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, it's not just that a lot of these places run like VFWs and American Legion. I've got a, a military background, but also, you know, but my, my players aren't going to really like coming to playing with me if I, you know, if I killed their local, you know, or whatever. <laughs> right. like, program. So, yeah, good point.
1: Um, I, I would think also, I mean, you, you mentioned it uh, in, in passing, but I would think like professional dealers would be a, pr- a pretty big deal, especially if those if any of those charity games are, are self dealt. like my little bit of experience playing in self dealt games, like really made me appreciate dealers more than anything else so i was just like it's so annoying to have to do this like <laughs> I, I would happen and like when you when you realize the price that people will pay because like in the uh, oregon rooms it's like it's uh, they're self-doubt at least some of them are and um you know there's sort of rules or, or like how you how you decide who's going to deal and then you can like pay somebody to, to take your deal for you and you quickly like the, the going rate to pay another player in the game to deal your down for you is like much higher than what you're generally paying a dealer like if you're just like a player to, you know like, it's often like 30 or $40, which is, I think, more than any individual oh, is contributing to a dealer for a given down. But like, people are willing to pay that to not have to deal. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so what, what goes into training? Uh, I mean, if you've got people who are new to, to dealing, um, how, how involved are you in the training? Is, are there like outside services that, that do that? Or are you pretty directly involved in, in training those dealers?
2: Uh, so no, I will be extremely involved in training them. Um, I don't know if there's outside companies or contractors you could put in to like do this kind of work, but um, I'm more comfortable just doing it myself. I feel like I know what I'm talking about, and I know how to pitch mm-hmm. cards, and I know this rulebook pretty well. So I'd rather just do it myself um, and get them trained to how to the standard that I want them to be at, rather than farm that out to someone else. So, uh, answer your question, I'll be extremely involved in the training. I'll be uh, most likely just the lead trainer, basically there all the time. Um, we're putting together the training schedule right now, and uh, it, it is tricky. We're probably going to have basically two like types of people coming into the school. Um, there'll be uh, experienced dealers or casino employees that we have at Indiana Grand now, and there'll be outside hires that have never, um, you know, touched a, you know, have maybe never been at a casino in their entire life, and we're trying to teach them to play cards. Um, so, it the first thing that needs to happen is we need to start off with like dealer 101. So, how do you cut checks the right way? How to deal the deck the right way, how to manage your float the right way, stuff like that. And from there, it moves on to seems relatively more complex, but uh, probably you, it sounds pretty basic. Like does a flush beat a straight? Where does this fall? You know, how do you read a low hand? Uh, The the rules of poker, stuff like that. Uh, From there, you just kind of gradually ramp things up. And so we start with like a relatively simple poker variant, like limit hold'em. And you basically teach the rules and procedures for that. And the class sits around all day, playing limit them and tapping each other in and out of the box and working our way around the table and talking about procedures and talking about uh, issues that come up. And uh, obviously me and whoever else I'm training with will be uh, supervising, correcting what's going on. Um, then after a couple of days of that, we things get a little more complicated. Move on to do no limit hold 'em. So we introduce big bet games. Um, there's not a whole much, uh, not too much new to treat them once they've got limit hold 'em. The limit hold 'em is a pretty easy step. Uh, once they've got no limit hold 'em, PLO is a little bit bigger of a step. Um, a lot more mental math to do there. Some different uh, procedures. Uh, then after that, it'll probably Omaha either better will be the last like main game that they get taught. And then at that point, that's looking at about six to eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm gonna have to get them out of the floor at that point. And then the plan is later once I got the room staffed and we're stable and up and running. Um, start bringing the dealers back down for concurrent training to deal, uh, to train, uh, train them on everything else. So, stud, doogie, um, Chinese, pineapple, uh, everything else, the uh, markedly less common like poker variants. Get all those, uh, talk to them at a later date.
1: Mm-hmm. How how responsible are are dealers for security? I mean, obviously they have their own role in it in terms of like not rolling the deck or like doing other things, like not actively inadvertently, but actively like contributing to uh, to game security problems. But in terms of like spotting collusion or something like that, is is there an expectation that dealers are um, are having a role in that or is that like security is kind of a separate um, function?
2: Sure. Um, So for security and game protection issues that the dealer is most concerned with the casino's money first. And so their number one priority is making sure that all money that goes in and out of the float is correct and gets handled the way that our procedures outline that that needs to happen. Um, With security on the bigger picture of like other players colluding with each other. uh, My dealer definitely is a sensor on on the game and should and will be letting those supervisors know if they think that anything questionable is going on. But at the end of the day, if two players are going to collude to each other, the first person that they're trying to keep it away from is the dealer. Um, so there's only really so much that my dealer can do to prevent that sort of thing from happening. Uh, beyond that, it's my supervisors to be engaged with what's going on in the game and for us to be getting uh, related information from the surveillance department about what um, maybe some suspicious activities that have been noticed by the players. Uh, but the dealers, like I said, primarily uh, interested in just protecting what's in the float and they will keep an eye on everything and are supposed to like let the supervisor know of anything unusual that's going on. But it's not on them to like spot pollution or spot uh, weird tricky plays that are going on. That's for my supervisory staff and my my surveillance staff and for me to figure out.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think you know, what you said about the, the the order in which you're you're teaching things uh, kind of makes sense. Where it's like it, it seems a little counterintuitive maybe, and not that, like, the dealers won't know how to play the games or whatever, but, you know, if, if they make a mistake in terms of, like, calling which hand wins the pot, like, someone else is very likely to notice that, you know, whereas if like, there's there's other things that if they, if the dealer screws it up, like, they're the only ones who can um, like, I, I, I sort of feel like a lot, a lot of the issues with, like, how the games get run will take care of themselves, and, and the dealers will sort of, like, there's room for them to learn that a little bit more on the job if they're not, like, perfectly precise on on some of those things. I would think that, like, some of the, the game and integrity issues and uh you know, making sure that you're handling money correctly and, and that kind of thing is is really the most important thing where like the,
2: the the dealers getting it right is the only way that it goes right there's there's not really room for them to make errors there yeah i think that's like the the basis of all security is just making sure that everything's being done accurately and everything else kind of falls in line from there when it comes to game protection game security yeah you know, are, are, these policies are there for a reason, you know. So right. Whether or not you know what they are, like the, the dealer not rolling the deck, that's there for a very specific reason. You know, the cut card being there is there for a reason. Even though my dealer might not know why it's there, they just know that they have to have it, and they they should never be rolling their wrists. Right. You know.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, do, do you make an effort to teach the why, or, or is it really just like just follow the procedure and and don't worry about the why?
2: uh i always make an effort too um I, I i personally learn best from knowing what the why is from knowing the reason why i'm doing something and being able to like fit it into a bigger context of like oh here's why this is important to game protection oh that's why that's important um i do, do try to emphasize that but i, I appreciate at the game that that sometimes can be a detail to get missed and that the, the why is why we do a lot of things like even i, I even i may not know the why of some procedures that are in the book you know um, maybe yeah. In life, for so long, no one's ever done it differently for the last time. Yeah.
1: What I, I read, this might be something that that's kind of in in flux. Are there any like COVID specific things that um the dealers are going to have to enforce? Is there like a mask mandate or anything like that?
2: Uh, yeah, we will see. I guess about that, we're still waiting for guidance. I think from the state and from Caesar's. I think there's a there's a change coming for our mask guidance policy right now. Uh, But I'm not going to claim to speak on it until they go public with it. Um, But Probably in the poke room, given. So right now in Indiana, there are no restrictions in terms of people I can have at the table. Um, We do ask uh, guests that are not vaccinated to wear their masks. However, it's not a requirement, and we're not checking uh, IDs or vaccination status or anything at the door. And uh, it's the same policy right now for my employees that um, everyone's encouraged to wear a mask, but uh, you are extra encouraged to do it if you have not been vaccinated. Uh, But in terms of mandates or anything, that's not something that's... I'm not even sure if that's something at the property that even my general manager controls. I'm pretty sure that's like a Caesar's corporate policy. So I'm not sure how much uh, I can even speak to this at all, honestly. Sure. Yeah. I I was just curious if there
1: was like mostly I'm curious like whether or how like in, in places where there is that kind of rule, um, how it's being enforced. I, I really have not played much live poker at all. In I mean since like March of last year or whatever. Um, so I like, I, I kind of just know from from social media, but uh, like how much in places that do have mask mandates, like how much they're being enforced and how they're being enforced, or like if people aren't wearing the masks correctly. Uh, actually, I saw someone on Twitter yesterday suggest just dealing them out, which. I I thought was sort of an elegant solution to the problem um but uh, i guess that might not be something that you are you're gonna have to deal with i was just curious
2: and and we might because i mean you know i mean it's not like things are going very well with this pandemic these days so there's no reason not to expect that we can't uh, expect to see you know more restrictions get put on to try and mitigate this whole thing um but going forward like in the program itself given that there's no separation possible between my staff and the players like Everyone's gonna be asked to wear a mask. Um, I don't think, I think I'm still waiting from guidance from corporate, uh, whether or not I can mandate the players doing it, but definitely all my dealers will be wearing their masks. Um, whether or not I could do that with players, yeah, that's not really up to me. Um, hand sanitizer, all that stuff, and we'll just continue to you know watch the situation, take guidance from the governor's office and the gaming board as it comes down to us or through corporate, but um, yeah. Uh, I think like anyone else, I don't really we don't really have a lot of answers or. Best right. Doing yeah. And, and the situation might look we've been different. doing so far and getting through it. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and the situation may well look different in a few weeks when you're uh, when you're opening.
2: Uh, um, hopefully it looks different. Hopefully. right. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: in terms of of uh, promotions, it, I guess there's sort of a trade off, right, of um S- certain kinds of promotions are going to benefit regulars more, certain kinds of promotions are going to benefit, you know, limit players versus, versus no limit players. Uh, how do you, how do you think about that? That kind of, I mean, I, I assume you're going to have some kind of like bed beat drop. Um, how do you think about, uh, how, how you're allocating that or how you're making those, those trade-offs?
2: Uh, yeah, that is a good question, and that's been something I'm trying to wrap my mind around for the last couple the last two weeks or so, uh, as I'm getting these um, promotions packaged up together. Um, so, yeah, different ways, different ways to, for the for the promotions to uh, benefit different types of players. Um, I'm not going to be, we're not going to be kicking right off the bat with too many promotions, because um, at the end of the day, you know, the, the bank starts at zero. I don't have a little bit of money to be promoted in the room before we've even built up this promotional role. Uh, but we can do some stuff to run some opening promotions, like I'm down for a high card or giving away seats to our local tournaments and stuff like that. Um, Turns of catering to different players. That could be tricky. And it's also tricky for me to explain something that's nuanced to like my marketing department or to mm-hmm. my boss. And in terms of like different kinds of poker players, like regular poker players or casual poker players or professional poker players, like it's very hard for me to explain the difference in what they're looking for to like my bosses. Um, so m- most of the way that we've been looking at it is that um, spend money when the room is slow and don't spend money when the room is busy. And um, so we're looking at extending times that we're busy. So we add promotions that like, okay, we know the room is going to be packed between five o'clock and 10 o'clock, probably every day of the week. So I don't really need to run about promotions there. What what can we do to get people in the room early? What can we do to keep them here later? What can we do to increase turnout in the tournaments? Uh, It's kind of the way, like the the lens that I'm viewing this problem through. Mm -hmm.
1: You might not be there yet, but is there anything uh, you've thought about it in terms of trying to attract specific demographics? Like... um, Maryland Live, which, where I play most often, they have like a ladies brunch where uh, I don't know if you, you know, strictly speaking, have to be a woman or you know, what, what the rules are there, but it's sort of designed to um, encourage more women to try poker and they have you know, sort of like a little brunch thing. And, and uh, you know, it's meant to be, I guess, more friendly atmosphere and they teach you the rules and, uh, you know, are, are, are your... Um, Plans right now, is, is is there anything that's sort of okay, th- this this group of people, this this uh, demographic might be less likely to, to try poker? I want to try to do something like targeted for them.
2: Mm, yeah. So I suppose that the short answer is no. I'm not really looking to target a specific demographic, but maybe just more in general, people that would be open to playing poker, but maybe find some aspect of coming to play in a card room intimidating or that mm-hmm. for some reason that they don't. Like, you know, what, what are barriers to entry that maybe I'm so accustomed to working and being in a poker room that I can't even see them, you know? But what is someone, mm-hmm. a brand new player who's never been exposed to poker in a cartoon before, what are they seeing that is not going to uh, reflect well in the room or maybe not get them to come back, which may not be a problem that you or I is even aware of, right? When right. we the room. So it's it's trying to identify stuff like that, um, <laughs> which is tricky because I don't know what I don't know, you know? So, right. So, uh, yeah. you know, listening to people trying to get opinions and stuff and look at things you know from a different perspective is about the best i can do with it
1: Mm. um oh you you mentioned a while ago uh and i think we we didn't come back to it uh when we were talking about how how profitable the room was going to be you said you know with with the wsop tournament being kind of like uh an exception you wanted to come back to I, i was curious to hear more about that
2: Oh sure, sure. Uh, you know, I think no, I think I just meant in terms of exception. We were talking about um, like the profitability of the room and whether or not um, the the money that the room makes uh, matters. And the short answer is, it, it definitely is. Like my, you know, however many millions of dollars the card room turns out over the course of a couple of years will be important. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, with the exception of that, of course, it's going to be the World Series of Poker stops. Like there, there is a reason that corporate puts these on. There's a reason that it's contribute to uh, continue to. Um, like spread and grow the brand, uh, the WSOP brand, and everything is because these things make uh, serious money for their for the casinos that helps them. And it's not just in uh, you know Rick from the tournaments and increase Street from the cash game. It's all the action that goes on in the pits or the slot machines and all of the drinks that get bought up and all of the hotel rooms uh, that yeah. get sold out and stuff. So that is about the only way that uh, the poker room contributes in a financial meaningful financial way to the casino is is through these WSOP uh, circuit stops.
0: And is
1: that something? I mean, I know like there, there's some tours, like World Poker Tour or something. My understanding is the the room is kind of like essentially paying them, you know, to 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 bring an event there. In in the case of WSOP, right? That's already a brand that that Harrah's owns. So is that like is that essentially not a cost for you, or do you still sort of are you kind of like paying something to a different department within um within Harrah's, or like how does that work?
2: Uh, sure. So, okay. So the way that it works, so, okay. So these, these other, all the, um, the tournament series and stuff that go around the country, uh, HPT, MSPT, WPT, WSOP circuit, um, these it's, so they do, the casino does pay them to put on the event and they're looking, they're basically piggybacking on the marketing, um, and the name and the branding and all that stuff and like the publicity for it. But at the end of the day, the casino is the one running the promotion. And yes, they are sharing some of the profits money made with like, Um, the MSPT or Heartland Poker Tour, the WPT or whatever, but that most of the money is still, is the casino's rake uh, that Mm -hmm. they're taking. And and it's a little bit easier with the WSOP because they are, we all, they're not only, you know, uh, a poker, the touring poker company or whatever, but they also happen to, you know, have the same boss that I do. Um, So it makes it a lot easier to just reach out for them. Uh, A good for example from this is that I had an email in my box yesterday from a man you may have heard of called Jack Effel. Uh, welcome you to the company and take a look at the room I'm like oh that's uh that's, that's pretty nice. cool. cool that i can yeah. just it's like call me if you got any questions like i will definitely take you up on that sir <laughs> that's cool so what's your
1: what's your own um background in poker i mean you you kind of hinted at it a few times but how, how does one end up in this position
2: uh, well, the way that I, I don't know how most people get here. I feel like I took a pretty um, circuitous route to do it. Um, so a couple of years ago, I, I, I've been in the casino industry for a couple of years. Um, I was on uh, active duty uh, military uh, right after I got out of high school until I was about 22. And when I got out of the service, I started going to school and then I was working casino security, like just on the side, uh, like part time or whatever. Uh, eventually that became, I went to dealer school and did that. And then eventually, I picked up poker and started uh, pitching cards at the casinos uh, just outside of Chicago for a couple of years. Uh, eventually, I moved up to Milwaukee. I worked at a an Indian, excuse me, a Native American card room called Potawatomi Casino up there in downtown Milwaukee. I was there for about three years. I went from dealer up to uh, supervisor, and then this pandemic started, and the casino shut down operations and fired everyone. So both me and my wife, uh, kind of desperate to see what was going on. We just kind of hunkered down in Milwaukee for a couple of months, trying to see what was going on, like the, like the rest of the country, basically. Uh, but at the end of the day, neither of us had jobs up there and uh, needed to go somewhere where there was. Unfortunately, I also so with my military background, part of my commitment to them is that I'm also a member of the National Guard. Um, so when COVID happened, uh, the National Guard started all these COVID relief programs and they pulled me out on, on orders down to, to Indianapolis. Uh, so I moved my wife down here. We got started on these orders down here. And that is how I moved to Indianapolis. Um, I've been on these COVID relief orders for, in one way or another, uh, working for the for the National Guard for about the last 18 months or two years or however long it's been now. Um, and when this opportunity that they were opening a poker room started, and I thought that this is almost too good to be true and suspiciously good at the timing, but I put in my, my resume <laughs> and got a call back. And before you know it, I'm here running the poker room. And uh, I'll be honest, this is like, I'm not sure if it's possible to have a dream job. I feel like I try to have more perspective than that and find fulfillment in my life in other ways. But this is about as close to a dream job as I can imagine. I'm very excited to do it. I'm pretty amazed at how everything, uh, all the cards fell together here.
1: Yeah, it's like a literal uh, right place, right time kind of thing. What What is the, if, I mean, if you don't mind my asking, like the, the COVID relief efforts that you were working, was that like, uh, I don't know, What what did that look like?
2: Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, the Guard was, um, i sure you guys heard, but the Guard was, the uh, National Guard was very busy for the last two years or so. It uh, started with COVID relief and then eventually expanded on to the old, uh, the civil unrest and the prior, uh, protests and riots and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But the Guard in general has been extremely active uh, for the last two years. Uh, my first mission uh, with that, we headed up to um, a high security prison in northern Indiana um, to help fill in with the, uh, basically fill in for the uh, correctional officer staff at the prison because they were Hemorrhaging employees due to COVID, just everyone being out for so long. So uh, they brought activated the National Guard unit, brought us in, and we were helping with security there, uh, like existing as like assistant correctional officers uh, with the people that were still there at the prison while they got everything under control. Um, from there, I took other orders that took me down to um, a small training base here in Indiana called Camp Atterbury, and I worked for them at their uh, at their training school, the Regional Training Institute, like the the Indiana Military Academy down there, and I've been. Functioning as an instructor um, for their infantry advanced leaders course for about the last eight or nine months um, before I got picked up on this opportunity here. So yeah, so basically my code relief stuff was um, the prison and then teaching infantry courses at Camp Baddabury. Uh But there were a bunch of other stuff going on with the with the guard. Um, obviously the civil relief stuff. People got called not to not just the Indianapolis and Chicago, um, Louisville. Obviously some um, some of my dudes went out to the capital with, for that whole shebang. Um, the nursing home relief, the food pantry stuff. I Honestly, I can't even uh, name all the missions that the guard is on this year.
1: Yeah, you know, I I had the sense, this might have always been wrong, but when I was a a kid in the 90s, I kind of had the sense that, like, National Guard was, like, a sweet gig because it it seems like you just do these trainings, like, every other month or whatever, however frequently. You you have these, like, occasional trainings, and I didn't really, I was like, well, we're not at war, so it doesn't seem like they're really getting used for much. I mean, obviously, that was, like, pre-September 11th, and uh, it it, it seems like maybe in in the last 20 to 25 years, um, it has turned into, like, more, of not so much a reserve as, like, we need these people and are using them constantly
2: yeah well i'm not sure i mean definitely during covid you know like th- that's what the guards there for place for disaster relief and emergency preparedness and stuff like that um, but i definitely had heard the same thing uh, when i first came into the garden in of the army i definitely heard that same attitude from guys that had been in for a long time like in the nineties <laughs> and stuff and you're right there definitely was a different attitude um <laughs> in the national guard uh, when there was not no war on and uh, you know that we went to Iraq and Afghanistan for 20 years, and uh, uh, the the operation tempo was so high. It wasn't just active duty that was over there. The guards, uh, the National Guards, especially in Indiana and other states, were uh, definitely seeing their share of rotations over there. So the more serious, more professional um, mindset has definitely taken hold on the Guard uh, mm-hmm. compared to how it used to be, from what I understand.
1: Was there any overlap? Uh, just, I mean, given that you had actually done casino security and then found yourself doing prison security, was was there any overlap there at all? Did you find like any uh, your your casino security background was of any use to you? Uh,
2: no, they bear almost no relation to me. <laughs> good security is helping little old instead of like tripped down the stairs or going and signing off like verifying a jackpot for someone or or walking with a cart and a cashier does a feel or something it's uh, not quite the same ball game
1: yeah <laughs> were, were there poker games in the prison that you were aware of
2: uh oh yeah you guys had that guest not too long ago that was uh that came up through that didn't it's you? been a little while now uh, yeah. not that I was not that well I was far aware far. of but um
1: it's been it's been a couple of years um but I, yeah I, I still think of that as, as one of our uh most interesting episodes
2: oh for sure I actually I think I was at the prison when I happened to come across that episode and listen to it um <laughs> but anyway for, for me being there I, I didn't notice anything there was definitely cards around and guys are gambling um at the end of the day they're trying their hardest to avoid someone like me seeing it so i i wasn't aware of it but that doesn't really mean anything fair
1: enough um so what are you what are you looking forward to well i mean i'm sure there's a lot to, to be like anxious about but what's uh what's exciting
2: uh, well, in terms of things that are anxious and exciting, this interview is definitely one of them. I was uh, sweating it <laughs> a little bit. I've never been interviewed before, <laughs> but you're uh, you're very friendly, so I appreciate you making this process not too hard on me. Um, but no, things uh, I'm excited for. It's uh, you know getting everything, getting the room arranged the way I want it. Um, I'm just very excited at the opportunity um, to hire, like I'm going to need to hire probably 60 or 70 staff, uh, at least to start off with, um, you know, and I'm very excited at the prospect of being able to offer that, um, you know, to the people that live around here, you know, these are the poker dealing jobs. I'm sure you guys, I'm sure you have a pretty good idea of how much poker dealers make, but it can be, uh, extremely substantial. And it is, um, I am excited by the prospects, um, you know, uh, nervous at the responsibility, but I am looking forward to being able to, um, run the room well, um, being able to provide, uh, a good wage you know with benefits and income and everything for my employees that'll be there and uh, i i feel like that is my number one priority is just uh, you know making the room run well so that my employees can come and make work um you know everything that uh, my employees can come and make money not work they can come and make money uh, obviously that helps the casino make money and then as long as they're happy i'm happy so yeah that's how we're that's how i'm looking at things
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's not really groundbreaking to say, like, it's nice to have uh, happy employees, to have happy customers or something. But I mean, I think that really is a... a it's hard to overrate how important that is in in a poker room in terms of having regular customers. I think for a lot of people, it is like feeling like you're part of a community there and you have friends there. And some of that is the other poker players, but like a real part of that is, is the dealers. You know, I think I'm sure you've seen this as well. A lot of people who do have um, favorite dealers or friendships with the dealers to the point where they're even hanging out with them outside of the casino or dating them or, you know, like they're really, there's a lot of interaction between the, uh, um, the 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 dealers and the customers and I think having you know popular popular dealers not just because they're good at the game but because they're like they're friendly and they're legitimately friends with the um with with the customers like I think that does a lot for like the the health and the overall mood of of the room
2: yeah yeah absolutely no the uh, the, uh, the the morale and welfare of my dealers is um. um yeah, definitely top of my mind. I feel like this is a mindset that I've kind of brought over from the army where, um, like, my soldiers are absolutely the number one important thing in my mind. And, um, you know, that maybe not as important uh, when I'm running the casino poker department, uh, but I can't really get away from that mindset that uh, they are the most important thing. I see too many advantages to keep them happy and doing the right thing and uh, trying to, you know, prioritize their needs over. You know, I don't even know why i prioritize it over. Just making sure that they take care of them. Um, you know getting the room started now getting here at the ground floor this is the great opportunity to set um, set the right culture in the room and um, mm-hmm. to have everyone buy into the vision of the poker room that i see that i think it's going to be a good one for them and a good one for the casino and a good one for the community and to get everything started off on the right foot um, have people looking at things the right way having people look at it solving problems in um, you know creative and interesting ways um, dealing with guests in Um, You know, making sure that we're prioritizing the needs of our guests and everything. Uh, I think getting, setting all that stuff down now, uh, having a good culture in the room is going to pay dividends in a couple of years here. As long (laughs) as we do the Lions, Lions share the work for setting up the the culture and getting everyone engaged. uh, Do that work now and it'll pay off for us in the future for sure.
1: I'm sure uh, salary and benefits, like you mentioned, are, are, you know, a really critical piece of this. But, um, you know, what, what are other things that you're thinking about in terms of uh, cultivating like dealer satisfaction and like having good, good morale on the team?
2: Uh, yeah, so definitely regular um, regular coaching sessions, not like bitch and gripe sessions, but just making sure, especially when all the, like so many of the dealers, I, I would have to estimate probably 90% of them are going to be brand new poker dealers when the room opens. Mm-hmm. Uh, making sure that they are being listened to, that the issues that they're having on the game are getting solved in constructive ways and that, you know, we're not pushing problems to the side or not setting someone, uh, you know, I need to set them up for success and to make sure that they've got the tools and that they've got the support from my supervisory staff that they need to do their job. Um, so it's very important that we get all that stuff right um, when things first start out, because, you know, that, that them feeling like they're listening to at work, feeling like they're good at their job is a huge, huge portion of what it takes to, like, have someone have a lot of satisfaction in their work. That, that's yeah. a ton of it. Um, so keeping up on that, uh, regular coaching and counseling sessions, uh, making sure everyone's engaged. And... Um, Definitely going to start off with some limited days. My dealers will be doing. They'll have everyone's going to have long weekends every weekend. Um, this is the way of keeping everyone happy, um, so that you know. And plus, it'll make me easier to take away that extra day once the World Series comes around. Mm-hmm. We need them for extra shifts. But uh, man, I'm open to your suggestions too. Uh, I feel like I I'm talking a lot here, but I, I'm definitely open to suggestions in terms of like what, what have you seen at other card rooms um or maybe how you talk to other staff members they're like oh boy you know if other places did it like this or had your outlook you know this would be a lot better for everyone do you have any yeah uh, maybe th- thoughts on that Andrew?
1: i, I guess my, my first thought is kind of similar to what i was saying about which is kind of what you said already also of um you know w- with with attracting the customers which is you're just making sure that there's open lines of communication with them like that you're it's like really, the, you know, you want to ask the dealers, like, what can I do to make this uh, a positive experience for you, or make sure that you're like uh, enjoying being here, feeling like this is a, a good option for you, and, and you're able to be um, not just uh, you know successful in terms of pitching the cards, but that you're able to be like. Uh, you know a, a ray of sunshine at, at the table or, or make people downright happy to be here and, and enjoy your company you know like that's not something that they can really fake. i mean i guess you can kind of fake it but like ideally you want to just be that the, the dealers are like reasonably happy they doing their their job so that that you know that this is sort of um it's natural for them to be friendly and uh and create a nice community there
2: um Yeah, for sure. And you can definitely use those, like as the dealers, you know, you keep the dealers happy, they form a relationship with the players, and then you can use that, hey, you know, maybe this player's unhappy about something, he's not comfortable talking to one of my floors about it, but he does mention it to a dealer that he's friendly with, you know, that is spot problems that might not get brought up otherwise.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess, I mean, it's tricky, like, making sure they know that you have their back in situations where, you know, unfortunately you know, like abuse from pliers is going to happen. And, um, I imagine that's what, you know, I, I don't really have the experience of, of being a dealer myself. There's not even a lot of dealers that I like know all that well to know like what their, what their main gripes are. But I imagine, you know, the, making sure that they feel like they're not out there on their own. Um, if they're trying to enforce unpopular policies or just when, when they're dealing with, uh, with difficult players that like you and and the rest of the staff kind of like has their back and they're not going to be, um,
2: stuck dealing with that, uh, on on their own. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, feelings on my dealers, like they, they should have not only feel like they're being listened to, um, they should be confident in their abilities to do it like they should know you know if a player is starting to get in their face i want them to be well trained enough to know that they're right you know and to be able to push the if you maybe not push the issue but like no sir this is the right thing to do here blah 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 uh, but also to know that at the end of the day they don't need to take anything from anyone and that my staff is going to have uh, an itchy trigger figure when it comes to pressing the ban button and calling mm-hmm. security to people dragged out Um, I'm not interested in putting up with any kinds of nonsense, uh, dealer abuse, uh, whether that be physical or uh, verbal uh, of any kind. uh, That stuff's not going to fly. And so I think just uh, setting a good standard there in terms of conduct in the room will go a long way towards that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the kind of thing that will also chase away customers. You know, even if it's not the customers getting abused, that's just like an uncomfortable thing to be around for a lot of people. Like that's the sort of thing where they're like, oh, that was just it wasn't fun. You know, if, if if there's a player there who's who's being actively rude to the dealers, like that's just not uh, not fun to be around. So yeah, I think that's. I mean, in addition to being the right way to treat your employees, I think that's just like good good business. I think those those people are are. It's really not a metaphor to say that they're
2: toxic. Like they they really do poison games. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, we, you see it all the time. Yeah.
1: Um, what, what keeps you up at night?
2: Oh, man. It is all the <laughs> stuff that I don't know that I don't know. Um, so uh, my boss and I were actually, we were walking the floor the other day, and we were walking through uh, what's going to be our prospective World Series venue. And it's actually, yeah. Uh, so the, the casino down here, it's actually half of its casino and half of its a horse track, uh, the Indiana Grand Horse Track. And so we're actually going to be probably doing the World Series there in their big clubhouse that's like up on the second floor and overlooks the racetrack and stuff. And we'll just be doing it like in the wintertime. And so we're kind of standing there and we're imagining we've got people that are working on like computer drawings of like how the poker, like how the poker tables are aligned and where surveillance cameras have to go and all that crap. We're just kind of standing there looking around. And I realized that there was only one bathroom with two urinals in it in the entire building that's going to be a little problematic when 500 people go at go on break at the same time. Yeah. And that was uh, that that is something that no one had spotted until it got spotted and like thank God we caught it because I don't know who was supposed to have that job of making sure we had the right amount amount of bathrooms, but it's stuff like that that that's out there and hasn't been caught yet is what keeps me up.
1: Yeah, that's understandable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, are there any poker rooms that you think of as as models where like I, I really like how they do things at such and such?
2: Um, so yes, and I have the un, I have the fortunate um, ability now to be co-workers with him, but like I said earlier, Mike Soto up at Horseshoe Hammond runs an unbelievable uh, product up there. Um, I played at the Horseshoe Hammond a bunch of times. They run some giant World Series stops up there. They put out a high quality product all the time and uh, Mike Soto definitely knows what he Michael Soto no, definitely knows what he's talking about when it comes to poker. so it has been hugely beneficial for me to have him um to have his number and be able to pick us for him stuff and get guidance and uh suggestions fielded from him
1: nice i was actually um I, when i i really first started getting into poker i was in college in chicago but i was not 21 i mean not that i didn't know people who were playing with fake ids but um I, i've never actually <laughs> no. played at happened despite that that was sort of where i where i got started as a poker player was in chicago but i just was never of uh, casino age
2: oh no kidding right now where'd you go to school at University of Chicago oh nice okay cool no I'm actually I'm from out in Naperville originally okay thank you for having me on Andrew I really appreciate uh, this opportunity and talking with you here and uh, yeah if anyone else has any suggestions to me please reach out to me via email Um, the poker room is tentatively scheduled to open January of 2021 Um, I say tentatively because that section of the building has not been built yet um, so more updates, <laughs> more updates come in the future. That is
1: kind of the definition of tentative, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to put the tent in tentative.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, are you are you actively hiring right now?
2: Uh, We are. Uh, I've got, right now, uh, you can just Google um, Indiana Grand Careers. It'll take you right to the corporate hiring website. Um, Hire experienced poker dealers, experienced poker supervisors, and anyone that wants to come to poker training class. Uh, We're going to pay new dealers in the class about $15 an hour to go through training. Training will be about 20 hours a week. We'll have a couple sections of it running every day, so like a morning shift, afternoon shift, evening shift for the poker class, uh, paying you 15 bucks an hour, it last about six to eight weeks, or so basically it'll stop whenever the room opens. And we're taking applicants for that as well. Um, if needed, I am willing to relocate people, and there are relocation funds and bonuses available if anyone's interested in that.
1: Cool. Well, certainly wish you the best of luck. I'll be curious to hear uh, how, like, uh, I guess you'll probably be pretty busy, but if you get a chance to uh, drop me a line, or maybe we can even do some kind of uh, update on here after it, uh, after it opens and you've had a few weeks to, uh, to after cut your teeth. Apart. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, what was that?
2: Or after it all falls apart, whichever happens. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs>
1: uh, well, thanks so much, Chris. It was really good talking to you.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Take care.
0: ocean of a car, my life, the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law. I know you won't